0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode six of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre, and with me is Z, and he isn't with us again this week. Uh, So, yeah. So, welcome to to episode six. So, in this episode, we're going to be first talking about a new tool that's been dropped. Uh, for binary analysis and rewriting. Um, just to clarify a little bit, by rewriting, do they mean basically like what I call monkey patching? Is that basically the same idea?
1: Uh, that you know? seemed to be what I got from giving this quick read over.
0: Okay. Yeah, so basically this tool is for uh, monkey patching binaries. So if there's like a vulnerability or whatever, and for some reason you can't recompile from source or you want to do a quick uh, quick like hotfix before... Uh, doing like a rebuild and whatnot um you can basically patch the binary to and relink it or whatever to remove the vulnerable piece of code so this this yeah, is it's essentially what kind this of worth mentioning
1: actually um this came out of the uh cyber grand challenge uh so i don 't know how familiar you are with the challenge, but um that was I, when I'm
0: not what is it
1: uh I know we've talked about it before, not on the podcast, but um. It was the def kind of like the automated Defcon team. They participate in like the Defcon main game a couple years ago now, I think. They participate during two years. So the idea was that they would essentially be a, uh, like, they would be able to take the binaries like in the Defcon main game and automatically kind of patch those or fix them. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. that's kind of what this was born out of. Uh, the Cyber Grand Challenge. I don't remember how much DARPA was actually offering as prize money. And if I recall correctly, pretty much all of these automated systems, um, while they are definitely make some progress, I don't think they did very well compared to the human teams. I don't have the stats on hand. I probably should have looked that up before this. But I think it's interesting to kind of see something actually coming out of that, not just as the a theory, but now here are some actual tools that are coming out from that.
0: Yeah, I actually do remember you talking a little bit about that now. Um, yes, yeah, so it, it's they also not only do they have a tool, but they also have a library. I don't know if you saw that. I think that's pretty neat. Uh, I think it's a bit further down here. They talk a little bit about the library. Um, let me just see. I think it's still talking about the tool, but yeah, they've they've provided a library along with it, and so for serialization they use Google's Protobuf and it's under the MIT license so you can use it with uh whatever you want to do pretty much the, the MIT license is pretty open uh i i noticed they had some some cheeky lines in there uh talking about uh uh where was it i i forget exactly what the line was but yeah uh but it's it's cool because this is yet another free tool right so we've we've had uh hydra for reversing for you know disassembling and stuff like this uh and the decompiler and now we have this is another free tool because i know they they talked about other tools like anger that exists but is is anger paid or is it i
1: don't i haven't used that so
0: i'm trying to i can't remember if it's open source or not we can take a look here i guess yeah it's um, open source okay it is open source so nah, never mind that i guess uh but yeah it is just even more tools coming out
1: yeah i mean there's people are always kind of releasing their scripts and stuff like we're always kind of getting a dump of things but like i said it's i think it's cool just to see this coming out of the darpa program well not out of darpa but like out of that cyber Grand challenge um yeah just as a real applicable thing coming out of it um and i mean the tool does seem a little bit interesting i i didn't get a chance to dig too deeply into how it worked walkthrough not not too much of the technical details but enough to kind of give you an idea of what it's doing and how this is useful
0: yeah yeah so i think maybe this could also be useful for like ctf type stuff possibly i could see maybe challenges incorporating this kind of uh this kind of aspect to it
1: well the challenge incorporating it or as a player being able to utilize uh this type of tool i mean it you know, since well, was, the Grand Challenge was based
0: around the CTF, I was thinking kind of both. I was, I, I can't think off the top of my head how you could use it in like a Jeopardy style CTF. Uh, but, well, just well, you may, maybe use finding it for, the like,
1: vulnerabilities in general.
0: Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like you said, definitely it would definitely be helpful for like the attack and defense CTFs because that's where it was born out of, right? So.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll move on from that. Uh we'll go to the uh CT fuzz. So I'll just timestamp that. So we're on CT fuzz. So what this is basically for is fuzzing for timing leaks. So uh these are basically side channel attacks, so it's primarily crypto focused, right? You basically use timing attacks against a crypto system to try to gleam some information about a key or something like that right
1: yeah i mean it's um, in crypto is one place I, well generally it's it's information leaks, so leaking internal information usually like one of the most common places you'll see uh timing issues are in password comparison so you know you enter your password on a website and it hashes in that does like you know equals equals some other password you know dot string compare whatever it just does a string compare and Uh, when it does that, you might have it like it's going to look at character zero versus character zero of like the expected string and the input string. And then if they match, it goes to character one. If they match, it goes to character two. If they match, it goes to character three. But if it fails, it just returns. So that means if you get the first, that means the time it takes to calculate if they match goes up the more characters that actually match.
0: Um, Yeah, that's true. I never really thought about that.
1: Well, so that's kind of what this i mean there are other things that this can also pick up on but like that's probably one of the most common cases of a timing based information leak is just looking at the timing for like that type of comparison comparing two things there should be a constant time comparison being done Uh, it should iterate over all the characters for example not just returning as soon as it's different yeah Um, so what i thought was interesting with this though is i mean one just most fuzzers are, you know, looking at memory safety. Pretty much what you'd expect the fuzzer to do. You know, I when you mention fuzzing, you think about those types of issues, you're looking for crashes. Uh so I kind of like this is it takes an idea to find um timing-based issues which are definitely very subtle issues, especially when we are talking about seeing them in crypto. Uh you know, yeah. they aren't uh, they aren't issues that we that are immediately obvious it takes a lot of different uh, executions to kind of notice it if you're doing a manual assessment uh so what they do here is they'll basically run uh, so they use afl fuzz as uh for test generation uh for coverage information for things like that uh but the key thing that they do differently is that they execute the program twice um and use use the coverage information to see if the two runs are relatively equal or if they're distinct from each other cuz so, i mean it's you don't want to compare the timing of two executions when they're doing completely different things the fuzz test was totally different uh but yeah. if the two cases have um, essentially like the si- similar coverage but they have a difference in or a, i think they use the term distinguishable execution run uh so yeah You know, if they see a difference in timing, that's how they know there's a timing issue. It seems really obvious, but as far as I know, like, I haven't seen any tools that actually do that or implement that. seems really obvious, you know, just mentioning it. Like, of course, you compare the two execution times. So, no, I'm kind of interested to see what this uh, might be able to find.
0: Yeah, so I I did want to touch on that a bit because, you know, especially when you get to the crypto level uh, and you're getting to, like, hardware uh, level timing attacks—it's quite complex, right? And like you said, it's not an immediately obvious thing. And uh, you were talking about how it compares the two executions of the of a program with mutated inputs. And I actually I, I looked through the paper a bit, and I saw they used a few interesting tricks. Uh, one of them was they actually used JE malloc for the uh, they replaced the allocator with JE malloc, uh, so that uh, the Allocations for the heap were more deterministic so that it would be more consistent uh to try to find those timing issues more accurately. And it would also like fork from the existing process to keep the same address space and everything like that. Uh and the other interesting thing I saw was a set of generated per program input processors, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure what they meant by that. I don't know if maybe you you saw something that I didn't there. Um but I imagine it's just basically saying that, you know. Uh, for each program, they generate; they have its own like input generator kind of thing. Uh, now that being said, there are some you know specific information that it needs to work with. You need to provide it with some argument information. Uh, it requires some spe- some special environment setup, some default values, and obviously, it doesn't detect all types of information leakage. It's only the ones that uh, like the more subtle ones. It it can't really pick up i saw
1: yeah which Um, i mean is actually an it's an important thing though because these are more subtle issues it's not a crash that you're looking for it's this subtle timing difference um so i mean like it's something that matters Uh, providing argument information like i mean that's just setting up your fuzzer essentially and yeah sometimes the fuzzer needs to be built special that those are given this is user land this is you know fuzzing a program that you can run yourself not like I don't know, a network fuzz over, you know, binary blind or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I think the biggest takeaway take from this, uh, this idea, this tool is that we are starting to see tools now for more and more complex issues. Cause I remember we were talking about on a previous podcast, about stuff like race conditions that are more subtle, that we don't know if it'll be possible to automate finding those within the foreseeable future. But this is another issue like race conditions that are pretty difficult to find. It's a complex issue. And like this tool seems like it's it's pretty it's a pretty good step in that direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's kind of going to be questions about the granularity of the timing issues, like how subtle of a timing issue can it be before it picks it up? Yeah, Uh, there are going to be issues like that that come out of this. But I mean, like with so many things, it's a step in the right direction.
0: Yeah, it's not a final goal or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, so hope I'm I'm really interested in, to see what happens with this. See if it maybe grows and becomes like AFL is like a, a pretty much industry standard for fuzzing, right? And I'm wondering if this might become a new industry standard for testing, uh, stuff like crypto chips and stuff like that, where timing attacks are common. Uh, so that that would be that'll be cool to see if that does eventually happen.
1: In my opinion, it's probably not going to become industry standard. There might be somebody that then takes this idea and builds something off of it. Um, usually, I mean, as far as I know, there wasn't any like big release of this. It was just a paper published. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if they a had a uh, conference with it associated with this one or not. But, I mean, my guess is it's more likely somebody will kind of build off of this in the future, perhaps, or it might we might start seeing it implemented into, like, some of the big-name big, uh, big name scanners, uh, just kind of yeah. doing that. I, pr- actually, big-name scanners, maybe not, uh, just because, you know, it's fuzzing, not so much scanning, but...
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not hopeful that this particular implementation is going to take off, but the idea seems so simple. I mean, I could definitely see somebody running with the same idea, building something else. Or maybe it has been done, and I'm just not aware of it.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't. uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you said, it is a simple concept. I could see it being done before, but I haven't heard of one either. So, yeah. So that's pretty much everything on that topic. Uh, The next thing we're going to cover is some news. So we're going to cover the malware tech uh, plead. Uh, Uh, Surprise, surprise. (laughs) <laughs> All right, man, so let's be
1: I, honest I don't think anybody really thought there was going to be a not guilty pleas with this or not guilty plea with this
0: yeah so I remember hearing I remember hearing about this case a little while ago because there was something where I think the article even mentions this but I remember there was something where uh, he was saying the FBI questioned him and like misled him into thinking he was helping to solve another case when he was they were trying to get him to indict himself or something like that. Uh, and there was other things where he was, you know, sleep deprived and whatever, because of DEFCON. Uh,
1: yeah. Cause I think they arrested him like <laughs> right after DEFCON.
0: Yeah. Uh, and the thing he was basically taken in on was writing banking malware. So, you know, I, I saw a lot of posts uh, talking about, you know, how it was, everybody does, everybody writes malware and, and rootkits and whatnot when they're young, or like all hackers do or whatever. Um, But that being said, banking malware, it's not really your run of the mill, skiddy type thing. Banking malware is a pretty serious uh, type of malware. I mean, so I I
1: think a lot of people kind of write the rats. You know, you're getting started learning to program, kind of playing around with certain things like, okay, or remote access. Um, And that can include a ton of different features. That said, I mean, it, it's definitely on a different level. Because, I mean, one of the big concerns here is, does his arrest kind of lead to a slippery slope? Are kind of other developers, these people that just are hackers and all of that, uh, that kind of write kind of some of the software that's questionably legal, are we suddenly going to be facing uh, prosecution because of these questionable programs that have been written? And I think there's kind of a question of dual use. And remote access Trojans or tools, you think there's, mm-hmm. there's dual use there. You can, it could either be used as a Trojan, it could be used as a tool. Uh, there's yeah. a dual purpose in kind of what's there. As soon as you start selling it, um, like for banking malware, there are very few reasons to, you know, be scanning for the credit card numbers, like just writing it. Um, you can probably get away with just writing it, but as soon as you're trying to sell that, there kind of comes down to the question of can you re can what a reasonable person think that this is being used for nefarious purposes or for good purposes? And that's where I think this kind of falls apart is there aren't a lot of good purposes that come out of the type of banking malware that he seemed to be developing. Even if it was a while in the past. I'm not sure what the time frame was between kind of his arrest and um when he actually wrote this and tried to sell it but
0: I I think it was a few years I think it was like four or five years or something like that
1: yeah so I could definitely see him having changed a fair bit in those years like you know people change it sucks but at the same time what what do you really say he's wrote banking malware there aren't a lot of legitimate uses for that especially when he starts selling it I don't don't know where he sold it yeah. Um, I mean, you could argue something like, oh, well, I want to be able to monitor my computer to make sure I don't accidentally enter my credit card information somewhere. That's why I'm monitoring the network traffic for uh, credit card information. Like, I could imagine some story that you can spin for that. It's not a regular part of anybody's tool set to do that. Guess he could maybe call, you know, as part of like a outbound WAF or something, or I guess not WAF but just outbound firewall doing deep packet inspection. Inspection, but yeah, I mean that's the thing you have to frame these things correctly when you build them. And my understanding is he basically framed these as what they are, banking trojans. Like it's... I don't, I haven't seen the tool. I just imagine like you know a hack forms post or something <laughs>
0: offering it. Probably, yeah. Uh but i did see a few people were uh, a few people that i know were saying that he's probably going to get out on a deal do you think that that's a possibility trying to if he
1: was selling if he's willing to kind of uh rat out on people that maybe sold to contacts that he had at that point i i could see him being offered a deal like in all fairness it has been a number of years i i don't know what the statute of limitations is i know for cybercrime it's actually not all that long um, I mean, five years would still, I believe, be under it. But I mean, if he's. I, I guess I would just have to say, like, yeah, OK, if he has information, I could see them offering him a deal. I don't even think he necessarily needs to spend a lot of time in prison over this. Like, I, I'm definitely not pushing to say, like, oh, he should be sentenced to, like, the maximum of what, 10 years or whatever it is. Like... Yeah, 10 years is the max. I don't think that's. Reasonable oh, that won't happen. That. I mean, it's the I, max. Yeah. That means it shouldn't happen, eh. and I just say yeah. in this case, like I definitely don't think he should be. Especially, it's been a few years. Obviously, he was involved with taking down, um, WannaCry. Although I guess yeah. there were the rumors that he was also behind WannaCry, but
0: I, I don't really buy the tin foil <laughs> uh, category there.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I think it was just because he was arrested right shortly after that, because eh, DefCon happened shortly after that, also. Yeah. Um, so that's where I think that rumor came from. Obviously, I'm not buying that, but it's clear like he's on the blue team now, basically. Maybe he's still doing some stuff. I don't think any anything will have come up. So, I mean, my opinion is he's no longer a threat, you know, slap him on the wrist or whatever and leave it at that.
0: Yeah, and I did want to add there the the ten years or whatever maximum that the article states that that is over two charges as well, and the max on those charges is five years. So you have to oh, get okay. like max on both of them to get ten. So I think it's pretty much impossible that he gets ten. I I don't even think he should get five to be honest. Like I I think one to two is more reasonable.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I think we're kind of driving into some of the more political aspects of the whole prison system and
0: yeah, we'll we'll back into that real quick.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's an area we can definitely dive deep into, but I don't think we need to for this. I would just say, you know, he, maybe he has contacts to kind of have a deal and has information like that. If he's willing to kind of share that. Yeah. If he'll get a deal, I can't see any reason why he wouldn't. I don't know if he'd be willing to, I don't know, you know, what he feels like about snitches and all of that. There's, Obviously a lot of opinions on that. Yeah. I'd understand it
0: if he did though. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll move on to the the next piece of news, which is (laughs) this. I swear to God, we covered this like two episodes ago.
1: Well, Uh, um, I believe correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time we covered this, it was specifically of, uh, Facebook accounts. Now it's their Instagram users. Um, And it's actually the same issue, too. It's, again, logging of passwords. Uh, So they say, oh, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, for those of uh, you listening, the title of the article is basically Facebook admits to storing plain text passwords for millions of Instagram users. So that's what we're talking about here. Uh, Go on.
1: Yeah, so it's basically the same issue as last time. Last time when we had a similar issue, it was Facebook was logging passwords. That's the key thing. It's not some developer decide, oh, yeah, we should store these in plain text. This is they log them in plain text. Like they just like I kind of theorized, you know, overzealous logging, like, oh, yeah, just log the entire request, like the entire request body when some random error happens. And that way they can kind of figure out what happened by replaying that. And, you know, it maybe happened on a login, happened on a redirect after a login, something where the password kind of ended up in that request. Um, so because this ha- is kind of coming out now, I, they say it was from a routine scan. I'd be willing to bet that they kind of saw this in the Facebook and they're like, now was this logging added anywhere else? And now they're looking at their other applications and found that indeed it was in, in Instagram. Just the timing seems too much for it to just be a routine Scan, unless oh, they're definitely.
0: just I, yeah,
1: I mean, the other possibility is whoever does the routine scan is now aware that that happened before you know last month, and therefore when they looked at it this time, they picked it up,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's more of the former, uh, to be honest. And uh, so yeah, Instagram on top of Facebook now has this issue. Uh, Facebook said that its investigation that there was no. There was no, like, evidence of abuse of the plain text passwords uh, access, uh, which is basically what they said the last time with Facebook as well. Uh, um, but what what I thought was an interesting piece of the article here was the quote. Let me go to it here. It said, uh, they're being criticized on social media for trying to bury the security update by releasing it on the same day as the Mueller report. That is a pretty interesting, like, uh, like timing right because we know that facebook um like facebook's been getting a lot of bad pr lately so it would make a lot of sense if they wanted to do something like that
1: yeah and i mean we don't have enough information to say if they did or didn't i tend to want to be charitable and saying oh well it's just kind of accidental but that's fair so what what day did the was this out on like a monday
0: um i let me just see i'm this was posted on April 18th, which was a, like a Thursday. Thursday. Yeah.
1: So that's a weird day also to kind of choose to release this because obviously I, I would assume they knew about this at least for a little bit before they announced it. It wasn't just, oh, we found out about it during this internal review. Therefore, let's announce it like today. So, yeah, yeah, that does make it seem a little bit sketchy that they chose to release on the same day. Because obviously yeah. somebody chose to release it. But mm-hmm. it could also be based on a policy. You know, they find out about it. They uh, they give themselves five days to release it or something like that. They could have some internal working policy about how they handle that type of disclosure. Yeah. Again, just try and come up with a more charitable explanation than uh, the intentionally trying to bury it. But, I mean, I definitely wouldn't put past Facebook.
0: Yeah, it is Facebook after all. Uh, yeah, so we don't want to go too deep into this because it's basically a similar story to the one we've already covered. Uh, we'll leave a link in the description down below to the time code in a previous episode where we talked about this if you want more information on that. Um, so we're just going to move right into some, out of the news and into some protection uh, news. So the first protection we have up is this. So Google's basically blocking sign-ins from embedded browser frameworks starting in June. And the reason for that is they're trying to combat phishing attacks. And one of the more difficult to detect phishing attacks is, uh, like, man-in-the-middle attacks with browser frameworks. So if you have, like, a malicious browser framework, uh, you send the data to it, it can copy it or do whatever malicious things it wants with it, and then it could send it to Google.
1: Well, so and, I'm not sure that's quite the case here. Like, it is man in the and that's middle. That's what I read.
0: Like, well, it just
1: I... mentions kind of man in the middle, but I imagine one of the cases there is where it's literally somebody on the network who's intercepting and then replaying that same traffic through, like, in a way that they can control it, rather than it being an actual interception of, uh, I guess, a bear way to is imagine, like, a phishing page. Uh, So you have a phishing page, user tries to log in there, so then they use kind of the scriptable or embeddable browser uh, to actually kind of take the information that they input on the phishing page and send that to Google and pretend to be the user for them. Uh, Because like, that's that's the type of man in the middle, I think they're talking about not the type where it's like network traffic just sitting on there, like SSL strip type thing.
0: Okay, um, that that makes a bit more sense. Maybe yeah. So maybe I may this would be that.
1: somebody fishes the password, fishes the single sign on, and just replays them to Google. But now they, so to the end user, like it seems okay because they're getting all the right responses back from Google. They're just not actually browsing Google; it's just kind of being proxy to them. Um, yeah. So I mean, this kind of follows after a few other changes that have been made in the past two. Uh, like I think what was it last year or so. Um they started blocking uh sign-on. Uh,
0: JavaScript to be enabled. Right.
1: That's Last right. year was JavaScript being enabled. Uh, but back in twenty sixteen, they disallow things like uh the embedded browsers like on an Android phone. Um oh, so okay. like your Android Web View UI, like that type of element. Um okay. they disallowed logging in from that. So this is just kind of like a continuation of that. And, I mean, they're kind of pushing, in general, people just to use OAuth, their OAuth system, you know, get the get the grant code there, use that to communicate over to the API, use that. And, I mean, I'm totally okay with that. And I want to say, like, this type of requirement, I mean, one, requiring JavaScript, at this point, kind of the no-script battle is kind of lost. You need JavaScript on the modern web, that's kind of done still use things like umatrix and stuff but i mean this is an effective thing i think for preventing these types of man in the middle attacks you know just not a lot of people are really going to be logging in with these types of you know embedded browsers and stuff so using oauth if you're writing a legitimate application makes sense that said that's because google has a huge api library a lot of their services have these apis you can use oauth And you can use, like, the bearer token you get there. You can use that to access the copycats that are like, well, Google's blocking this, therefore we should. They don't necessarily do that. Um, And that's where problems come in, because now, I mean, maybe you just shouldn't be automating their websites then. We can kind of argue about that. uh, Because that would probably be uh, terms of service. But, I mean, it's worth paying attention to the fact that Google has provided an alternative here. Yeah. Copycats I have a fear might
0: not. Yeah, that's that's I didn't really consider like copycats. That's a good point. Um yeah, I mean I was I was looking at it a little bit and uh it mentioned explicitly the Chromium embedded framework. And I was curious to see if this uh protection would really break many things so i looked at some of the things that use the chromium embedded framework so i looked at like uh some game clients BattleNet, unreal engine adobe creative cloud email some email clients use it um
1: but do they use it
0: to actually
1: log in or do they do oauth
0: but that's what i was gonna say i i can't see many of them like some of them don't even deal with google products so they wouldn't even need google auth and I imagine the other ones, like OAuth, is an option as well. So, yeah, I was looking at, like, I don't know specifically on the uh, products that do use Google uh, Google Sign-In. I don't know if they use OAuth or not. Um, a- after June, I guess they're not really going to have much of a choice in that regard. But uh, I don't think it's going to really break many of the existing applications, uh, at least not past, like, a one-day update or anything like that.
1: No, I mean so. it'll break the um, malware using it. It'll break the phishing sites. Um, yeah. In terms it of actually trying break to build something, OAuth is really the path of least resistance when it comes down to it. Also, I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty easy to use. Try and fake like all the requests and like scrape the page and everything. You totally can't do that, but you can also get all the information you need right out of um the OAuth like it oh, was the API so like that is the easiest path so most developers i imagine are doing that um i can't imagine there's going to be a lot of applications that are breaking because of this but i do think it is an effect of uh mitigation to those types of man in the middle attacks
0: yeah and i i agree on that i think it's a good move by google so moving on to the next uh you know, this next it's one, a patent. patent. Yeah.
1: Um, so- I don't know how you feel about the patents, but just kind of give the rundown here. PayPal is patenting a uh, ransomware detection. Uh, pretty simple system. Essentially, you know, the gist of this is looks at the cache to see if there's content that was loaded from a file, looks at the original f- or determines whether or not, uh, you know, dirty cache entry or whatever, if the file was being modified. Um, determines if that modification uh, is an encrypted version of the original content. Uh, And basically, if it thinks it's an encrypted version, it's ransomware. It detects it that way.
0: So Uh, is there the potential for, for false positives with that? Is there...
1: Oh, of course there's potential for false positives, potential for false negatives. I mean, I don't it's a patent so they don't really go into a lot of details over how they determine it's uh, a modification is an encrypted version just they detect that somehow they determine that somehow but I I don't know I have concerns more around the fact that this is being patented rather than necessarily the effectiveness of it
0: oh you don't like the idea that it could be exclusive to PayPal where it could be
1: is this even an original idea I mean, I maybe the way because they mentioned specifically the cash versus, say, you know, hooking syscalls or something. Um, like I'm not sure yeah. how like malware bytes does it and stuff, but I would be surprised if this is like an original idea.
0: That's fair, and I I think there was a bit of a controversy over this patent because when I was looking into it, it was like it it was actually approved. Like people were expecting it to be rejected or something like that. When do um, patents? And, I mean, patents probably do
1: get rejected, but I always hear about stupid patents being approved.
0: Yeah. Uh, what I wonder about, though, is is there a potential privacy concern with PayPal being able to uh, do that kind of scanning? Like, Well, like I mean, we don't
1: know going. how they're using this. We don't know how they're going to deploy this or, in, or exactly. anything. Like, this that's very well I'm might be I'm something they about. just license out to antiviruses or use it to like, patent troll antiviruses that already do this. Um, I'm not sure okay, about uh, PayPal's history with patent trolling at all, but I mean, we don't know if it's going to be PayPal using this. They're just the ones who are patenting it.
0: Yeah, I guess it's it's a hard question to answer without knowing the technical details, which we won't get in this patent, unfortunately. Um, but the other thing I wanted to ask was so they they mentioned that the The main, you know, focus of this is to try to prevent uh, ransomware from using PayPal as like a a payment method for the for the extortion. Right. But is PayPal really that common of a payment service for malware uh, for ransomware to use? Like I've mostly only seen Bitcoin. I don't really see PayPal.
1: I usually see Bitcoin. I wouldn't be surprised to hear, you know, there's somebody trying to use PayPal with it. Um...
0: I mean it at, just at seems the same like time it's like super traceable. The, the, like
1: Yeah. I mean the it's not an ideal choice by any means if you're actually trying to get away with something. I wouldn't be surprised, but this just seems like they needed to have a reason for it. Um to yeah. kind of explain it. It definitely is kind of tangentially related. You know, they're effectively like a banking system. Like this is related to like you could understand their concern about ransomware and how it will impact their clients. I don't see, yeah, they're not a client side thing. So I don't know how they plan to actually apply this.
0: Yeah, that's, that's the big question. Hopefully we get an answer to that soon though. Cause yeah, or
1: I think how it's PayPal desktop application runs in <laughs> yeah, electron.
0: Pay- PayPal, uh, desktop web apps, At
1: PayPal <laughs> JS,
0: like PayPal.js. Yes. <laughs> um yeah i think uh, hopefully we get you know f- more information on how it's deployed like you said maybe it's maybe it's just an in-house thing for certain companies that they'll offer a service to maybe it won't be a widespread deployment thing uh hopefully we do get an answer to that soon but i wouldn't be surprised if we don't i
1: don't know uh, so does paypal like do they have ownership of any like melt like antivirus company
0: i don't think I so i don't think so i i if there is a connection i don't know of it
1: Yeah, like, like, I don't know, like, this is a weird, um, patent to come out, PayPal, like I said, I could understand their concerns about, uh, ransomware, I just don't see how they have any plans to apply this, um, unless they want a patent troll, like, that's honestly the only thing I'm seeing here is, you know, now they have the patent, so all of these, um, antivirus creators, they're going to now have to pay PayPal because they own the patent. (laughs)
0: obviously it's not exactly sorry paypal's i was just gonna say PayPal's not exactly the the most uh like nice company or anything they they can be assholes sometimes so i wouldn't be surprised if it was just a patent troll like you're saying
1: yeah i mean i don't think paypal has a history of patent trolling
0: so like i'm hoping that's not the
1: case it's just i've honestly like trying to give a charitable explanation I just don't know what they'd be doing with this patent. Yeah. Maybe they are just like, maybe they've announced somewhere like they're patenting it, but it's so everybody can use, like they're not going to go after them. Like, which actually I guess Tesla did something like that. And I mean, I don't think Elon's involved with PayPal at all anymore, but.
0: I was going to say there is that former connection between PayPal and uh, SpaceX, right? Or
1: yeah. Well, SpaceX,
0: Tesla, like all three. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so they
1: have released patents in that sense. Maybe it's something like that. Uh, I just don't know if PayPal's announced anything. But, I mean, even just being able to patent an algorithm like this. Like I said, there are some questions about how useful this is. Or not how useful, um, how original this is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to talk about it a bit more, but there's just not much information there from, like, a a technical standpoint. about Yeah, I mean, the
1: the patent idea, this isn't really hacking-related at all. Diving into the details, they just don't have enough information for us to really say how effective this would be. I mean, it seems like uh, it could be effective depending on how they do the determination. I could imagine there being more false negatives than false positives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we we just wanted to bring that up, but uh hopefully more information gets like there's something actually done with this patent later on, but yeah, I'm definitely most interested to see what happens with this. Yeah. So let's talk about some self-driving car stuff. Yeah. And uh <laughs> Yeah, we we love talking about AI on this. I mean, that is that's one of the big things being researched right
1: now is AI-based attacks. Uh, and i mean we actually have a couple or we have at least one more coming up um after this i mean for this one it's another case of just trying to get the neural network to misclassify something uh so they kind of had to focus in a lot of the talking or in a lot of the content around uh steering angle kind of making it think that it should be turning left or turning right or going straight when it should be doing something else uh this one uh, you do need control over the images coming in from the camera or at least some of the frames uh, so that means this is already a compromised <clears throat> vehicle it's not like yeah. being able to just attach something on the road <laughs> that said i mean essentially the messages are flowing through the cam bus you get, get can bus control you can forge frames coming in if you can forge frames coming in though you can also
0: just replace other... the entire image yeah
1: so i'm uh, not sure
0: how useful it is
1: yeah at, at the very least this is minor modifications uh most of like essentially what it looked like in all the cases was that the image was just a little bit darker obviously they made some other very minor modifications but like a human analyzing the data say this was used to kill someone um it wouldn't be obvious and I think that's kind of what's important about this one is it's not like this is something that again is kind of stealthy. It's something that someone can analyze the footage that came in, assuming it's all being recorded, and actually make a claim that like it doesn't appear to have been tampered with. Um if you scroll down, I think they have a few of the sample images.
0: Uh yeah. I think I remember seeing those, Um, but yeah. So just to add on a little bit there, so a lot of car AI like auto driving stuff is cameras and sensors, right? Uh, And uh, like you said, you you do need attack uh, like control of the ECU. uh, So you spoof images and send them to the camera from the CAN bus, and I mean, yeah. Like there's like you said, if you already have control of that, you can you can send like just a black box if you wanted to like you know it it it, is, it seems like something that's more of a stealth attack so it's it's kind of an interesting premise about how these slightly modified images can can make that much of a difference to how it's being parsed but yeah I,
1: and i mean this is something that i mean it seems to be kind of the common attack here is a lot of these things it's these very subtle issues that are intentionally malicious they're adversarial images they are intended to cause problems and it's like most of the ai just isn't trained on that type of data it's not trained with this idea that there's an intentionally malicious aspect to it and i think that's the problem um
0: so one thing i do wonder though looking at these images is they look like they could be images taken in legitimate scenarios like depending on the environment you know like the like just looking at it like you know the one on the right or uh, the one on the left but it says right <laughs> that was confusing uh but it it says like you know it's brighter right you can tell that it's brighter you know depending on like
1: yeah that's the you know, the uh, factors the input image is saying like okay it reads that knows it should go right because it can see that right turn coming up Um, Yeah, so that's why it's labeled there. And yeah, that's kind of why I meant by it looks brighter, or sorry, the attack images all look darker. I think they kind of talk a little bit about how they create these. Uh, But I don't think it had anything interesting, like the one where they were using like a specific pattern to backdoor the the network. Yeah, Um, in this case, it's just slightly slight modifications that end up leading to the misreading.
0: Yeah, so I assume this this kind of attack you'd probably employ as maybe a, a potential, like, post-exploit thing that you wanted to do. Well, Did I mean, you, you need, need that, that canvas, so there needs
1: to be yeah. a further compromise. I mean, a further compromise can literally just be plugging into the uh, vehicle. Like, it could literally just be a hardware drop on it. It doesn't yeah. need to be, like, some remote attack or anything.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, do you think it's reasonable to expect protections against these kinds of attacks within the next couple of years? Like against the uh like adversarial evasion attacks, I think
1: they're going I think it's you- something that needs to be considered. I mean cuz this is definitely a widespread issue as is there are I mean we've covered it on like almost every episode we've had some type of adversarial image you know leading to problems whether it be in uh, vehicle to vehicle or sorry vehicle imaging but uh, even when it's not in that it's still i mean it definitely honestly doing this podcast has made me actually lose a little bit of trust in self-driving vehicles (laughs) i mean we talked about it on like the first episode and the more i've kind of looked in and seen some of these attacks the more i'm seeing like yeah okay self-driving can work in like these really good conditions and like the normal condition but it seems like neural networks and stuff are just so soft when it comes to any sort of adversarial input
0: they just i guess they weren't really designed for like keeping that in mind which is dumb yeah, I mean, I think if we
1: start training with some adversarial data sets, like start training them to uh, look for that. And that said, as the data set grows more, as there's more variance in the data, as there's simply more data being collected and analyzed, it becomes harder to pull off. Um, I believe they even mentioned that in this one where um, uh, some of the models were or did have that basically didn't have the same success rate over every model. Um, and it was in particular the models that had more data were less successful
0: yeah I mean what I wonder is obviously I think there will be a push to try to prevent against these types of attacks in the future as it becomes more of a known issue but will it be too late we're already seeing AI and self-driving cars on the road today so Like, cars that are already on the road today are probably vulnerable, well, are definitely vulnerable to these types of attacks. And, you know, by the time that we start getting wise to these types of attacks, like, stuff could already have happened, right?
1: Well, I mean, we already kind of see some of the Tesla deaths where, even if it wasn't malicious, where it just, like, you know, drove into the divider on the road because they thought, uh, the lane was in the middle when, like, at a highway split. Uh It yeah. just, like, drove off the road. I mean, we already kind of see those. They're maybe not malicious, but they're just problems in the training data. Yeah. And that's a big reason why a lot of people just aren't going to adopt the self-driving cars. And not just... I mean, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, once self-driving cars are just a little bit safer, everybody's going to switch. And the reality is there's a difference in the type of danger when it's this robot that has an issue where it's like you don't have any control it's not my safe driving um you know most people are going to think they're above average drivers obviously the average person is going to be below or like half the people are going to be below average and half the people are going to be above average but everybody thinks they're above average i'm a good driver what do you mean exactly Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't think adoption's going to be very quick, especially with these issues, because, I mean, I would rather have my life be based on how good of a driver I was, not the programmer who wrote, the, who wrote that part of the AI or, what, or whatever data got trained, whatever in there. Having the robot make it, because those mistakes that the robot makes, they're very non-human issues. They're things people are going to be adverse to, simply in a sense, I like the term exotic risk. Um, even if it's not actually that risky, uh, people kind of avoid it because it's exotic. Or yeah. it's an exotic risk. It's a risk they don't see very often.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely cynical of AI when it comes to cars. Like, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. And like you said, like, I think we should just rename the podcast to AI Cynics. Because <laughs> it's just, it shouldn't be, I don't think it should be used in cars. It's just too like, too- I'm, I'm
1: still hopeful for it, and I've said, like, I really just want to be able to get on the freeway and have it go. I don't care about the last mile. I don't care about the city driving, but I've done a ton of freeway driving where, like, I've driven, you know, 2,000 kilometers down the same freeway. It's boring. That can be automated, <laughs> especially straight, because this is, like, whatever interstate it is running down, uh, basically just straight north-south to, into Oklahoma. So, like, along... Uh, Like Missouri, Kansas, the border there and stuff. Um, uh, It's such a boring drive. So I want this. Like, I would love a vehicle that could drive that. But yeah, I mean, I really can't recommend adopting it at this point because we do see these attacks. That said, we don't see these attacks necessarily on real systems. This yeah, uses, like, the NVIDIA classification model. Yeah. You know, so how much more data does Ford or Tesla have? I'm not sure, but that definitely would make a difference. And I think it would be interesting to start applying some of these and see what happens when you do apply these attacks to, um, you know, Tesla to want those actual systems and see what happens.
0: I mean, I feel like Tesla and those types of companies should be doing that in-house already. But well, I'm sure they, they do. do. I'm, I'm sure there's out,
1: some type but, of testing. Like, I don't know um, how adversarial the testing is. And I mean, yeah. there's so many different adversarial type attacks coming out, too. Like, different ideas, different concepts on how to go about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know if I'll ever trust AI, and when we keep reading papers like this, I just get further away from it. But uh, yeah,
1: I mean, most people uh, don't really like the idea of um, computers driving and basically you're putting your life in the hands of the computer or instead of your own hands like there's it takes a lot in of some trust. cases
0: is better. I mean, the computer is probably going to be better than you at driving in most cases, but there is the potential for tampering and stuff like that where you don't have that in like normal, you know, human driving.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, a sticker on the road isn't going to make me swerve. Yeah. Or at least probably not. I
0: hope, hopefully not.
1: (laughs) I mean, it depends on the sticker. If somebody made, like, one of those, like, perspective things, where you come around a corner and it looks like the ground's, like, falling out there or whatever. Okay, I might yeah. swear from that sticker, but like, <laughs> not in the same sense of the robotic failures. And that's kind of what I was talking about before with the different types of the robots failures versus what a human might do. Human might, you know, bad weather, going too fast, hydroplane, end up off the road. And it's like, you kind of look, that's it, like, okay, you know, that was a bad driver or like a bad driving mistake. It was a very human issue. And what the self-driving vehicles do is like oh, you know, we thought the semi was the sky and uh, tried to <laughs> merge into it, which happened. Uh, some, it was one of the first Tesla accidents or deaths.
0: Oh, really? I thought you were just, I no, you were just uh, making like a bit of a joke out of that. No, Even it was a white actually... semi.
1: White semi, oh. vehicle driving alongside of it. Uh, it thought the white semi was the sky and that the lane beside <laughs> it was clear, so it merged into it, killing the driver.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: Uh, the driver may have been distracted. I don't remember, but, um, <laughs> yeah, so that that's definitely happened. And that's a very, like, computer programmer robot mistake. Like, it's a very different type of issue than the normal driving. <laughs> so even if it's safer for the computer to drive, the issues that come from it are exotic. So that's the exotic risk idea.
0: Yeah all right yes we'll stop talking about the self-driving cars because we don't want to get too uh too cynical uh but we will talk about uh kmvx yeah kmvx so this was a pretty interesting uh protection that you brought up i think uh and yeah it looks like there's
1: going to be (laughs) a i think the conference already happened actually but they haven't actually uploaded like source into the github here they do have the tarbell in there so um i haven't looked at the source to be completely fair uh so i don't know how good that is compared to what they might fully release but yeah this was a conference presentation actually like a conference paper
0: yeah so a little bit of background so when you're doing kernel exploitation um kernel aslr is a pretty a pretty good mitigation at killing non like unpowerful bugs so you know kslr basically takes the kernels base address and memory and randomizes it um and so it's it's a good mitigation but it's easily broken if there's like any uninitialized data leaks so because only the base address is randomized and the contents of the binary aren't really shuffled uh one pointer leak or even a partial pointer leak can completely break aslr uh so information leaks are a pretty big deal when it comes to kernel security, and the other you know hard thing about them is they're they're kind of tricky to detect uh some of the, Some information leaks, like it's literally just padding that could be added by the compiler to structures. uh it could just be members of a structure that aren't initialized for whatever reason, like there's so many different subtle ways that there could be information leaked, and it could only be one byte, but even one byte leak. Uh, even a one-byte leak used in the right way could be weaponized. So I remember I brought up an idea a little while ago. Uh, I think you kind of shot it down. Uh, my idea was, you know, you would add some uh, function in copy to user, the copy to user API, that would check for kernel pointers, and if it found them, it would overwrite them with null bytes or whatever. But obviously, you know, that has some pretty severe overhead, and then. Uh, I think what you shot it down with was what if it's real data that just looks like a kernel pointer, right? Like there's that potential for false positives and stuff like that. Um, And what this idea is, is basically running multiple instances of the kernel on the same machine and running tests at the same time and then comparing the results. So it does this thing called variant generation, which modifies the memory contents uh, and stuff like that. And the difference of data in the leakage is. What it detects. So they have, I think, two custom system calls that they implemented. And it basically works with the copy to user API to audit all the data being fed into it. And if uh, what they coin as a divergence is detected, then the bytes are zeroed. Um, but not only that, the incident is also logged. So even if there is like a false positive, uh, you know, it's logged. So it's easier to track down uh, potential bugs with that uh now they they do go into some information on the white paper i'm gonna open that up here about how technically they detect uh like some of the details that they've leaked uh and what was cool about this was it had a pretty low overhead the overhead i think they said was 20 to 50 percent and that was in like a worst case scenario so Twenty to fifty
1: percent is pretty significant overhead. I mean, sure, it's not three hundred, but
0: I'm I I mean, yeah, it is pretty significant overhead. But it's it's not. It seems kind of low compared to what it could be. Like I'm sure you could get it lower. I mean, compared to
1: some of the things we've looked at, yeah, it's it's low. I don't know how quick I'd still be to adopt having a thirty to fifty percent overhead on you know essentially on the kernel which you want as low overhead as possible so
0: yeah i mean that that's definitely a fair point um but it would be hard to get low overhead with this kind of idea i'm just trying to think of like how you could potentially do that like maybe do like spot checks don't do it on every copy user call but yeah it it's it's a tough issue, but twenty to fifty percent, and like I said, that is. I mean, spot checking thing. is not. I, I'm going
1: to shoot that one down because then you just brute force it. So you just need the one.
0: Okay. You just need one to true.
1: work. So I mean, you. It's kind of an all or nothing thing. Um, See, and kind God of on that it, though okay. is, uh, you know, do you have any thoughts on how you might get around this? Like, let's say it was implemented. This was default in the kernel.
0: <clears throat> yeah. I'm like how you would get around it from an exploit perspective. Yeah, like? From an
1: ex from an exploit perspective.
0: <sighs> you, you.
1: Hmm. I mean to be clear, I don't. Um I don't have any ideas on, at this point on how you would go around that. I'm just curious if you do.
0: I, I mean my the way I would think of is trying to make it so that that difference of data. I imagine they they have a threshold for what they consider a divergence and a non divergence. You know, like I said, you don't need to leak like a full eight bytes of a pointer, uh, or sixteen bytes of a pointer, or whatever. You don't need to. You don't need to leak the entire pointer in many cases. The ASLR bytes are only like two bytes in, in like kernel addresses or something like that. So if you can leak even one or two of those bytes, Yeah. Or I know, guess go, if you could right? leak
1: one at a time, even uh, yeah. needing two different calls or whatever.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess the way to attack it would be, you'd have to be more subtle with it. You'd have to find leaks that are, you know, that aren't extremely obvious. You know, it's not like, you know, 30 bytes of padding or something that gets leaked. Cause I imagine that would probably be, you know, that'd probably be detected pretty easily. Uh, you'd have to find something that was more subtle. Uh, I I don't think it would kill everything even if it were implemented because no I mean I'm thinking you know in a
1: case that it would detect I mean there are it's not going to be perfect obviously there are
0: going to be cases kind of around <clears throat> it yeah but I mean even in cases where it does detect it I think even it would only really kill the you know kind of you know shitty bugs because. The more powerful bugs, you can usually derive your own info leak from a powerful bug anyway. So this wouldn't really help in that regard. Um yeah, so I think I mean, it could any kill Any read less gadget ones, can but... get you wet. Yeah, basically. So I mean it's I think it's a a cool idea. Uh like info leaks are definitely an issue that's been plaguing kernel security for a while. I just don't really like like you said, that performance overhead is actually fairly significant uh, for production systems, at least. Um, what I do wonder, though, is could you could maybe apply this in a different way. And what I mean by that is they're talking about utilizing this on production systems to try to like zero out potential pointer leaks as they happen. Where I think this might be better used is if you used it from a debugging standpoint to try to find information disclosures and then patch them instead of like trying to fix them in real time by nulling out the bytes and whatever, just try to use this to detect info leaks and then patch them instead of deploying it on production systems. You know what I mean? Yeah. Using it Where kind of like that, isn't...
1: using it almost like a fuzzer using a fuzzer with it or something.
0: Yeah. Then that overhead doesn't really matter. You don't really care as long as you're finding issues. Right. So, so there's
1: a uh, question in chat from Dibma. Um, how do you even measure the power of a bug since you made that comment about it not really ruining the more powerful exploits? So, do you want to share an answer on that besides what I said? Is it just being how useful it is?
0: I mean, it's complex because you have a lot of different scenarios, but uh something that I would consider a powerful bug is something like a double free because with a double free, You can target pretty much any object you want in the cache that you have the double free on. So, you know, you can target an object that has, let's say, a function pointer to get code execution and a buffer that it writes data to to get an arbitrary read. So what I mean by a powerful bug is you want a bug that can give you uh, more than one primitive. So if you can get like a read write primitive, that's a powerful bug. Um, if you can only get code execution, I wouldn't consider that a powerful bug just because uh, you probably will need more than that to to have a weaponized exploit uh, against all the like kernel mitigations. So, really, I guess what I would say is a powerful bug is a bug that you could abuse to get like an arbitrary read, or an arbitrary write. That's probably how I'd quantify it. I mean, it, that's kind of a surface level answer. There's there's tons of different scenarios that you could use um but that was that would be how i'd qualify a powerful bug i think would you say that i wouldn't would disagree with yeah.
1: no i mean it's that's what it comes down to i mean i i had the very simple answer of how useful it is you know having codec just using your example there, just having code execution i mean that's useful but you still need more. Whereas having the read-write, you can gain other things out of that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, versatility it, it, is a good word to use, Dibma.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I was just gonna say quickly that kernel and userland, uh, how they're a bit different in how I define a powerful bug, because in kernel, the ability to execute code, obviously, that's. That's great. But if you don't know where to jump to, like you can't, you you know, on most modern systems that have SMAP and everything, you can't just use user land gadgets in a ROP chain in kernel. It just won't work. So in order to get kernel ROP gadgets, you need to get an info leak. And ideally you create your own because then you don't need to worry about burning another bug. And in this specific uh, white paper, you know, you don't have to worry about Uh, It potentially killing your exploit or anything like that but uh, yeah I think that pretty much sums up that question and everything on the uh, KMVX did you have anything you wanted to add on that or
1: no I think we can move on to the uh, end to end encryption stuff here Uh, kind of another attack Uh,
0: yep Oh yeah, I just saw another question in there from some dude four fifty six. Do you guys think that the payout for an exploit that uses two bugs should be the same as an exploit that uses one powerful bug? Um, Define payout. Uh, like,
1: are, if you're talking about payout, like, um, <laughs> literally money wise, or like, I, I think
0: I think that's what he means is the money wise.
1: I mean, in that case, what matters is the end result. I mean, if you want to sell it as just the exploit. I mean, having one more powerful exploit I think is going to be more valuable when you go to sell it. You're able to sell it as something that uh, is usable in more situations, is usable, say, on more systems, or maybe it's just more stable, takes less attempts to get it, whatever. Uh, so in that sense, like you can ask for more, just that uh, uses one powerful bug. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to those points, how how usable is it when you're trying to sell it like you can it be used on like every kernel version ever created or something like that
0: I mean it's it depends a lot on the logistics of like how the sale is going to I think like if you buy the bugs separately then like it, it's kind of a hard question to answer because it's c- kind of case specific I would deem uh, an exploit that uses one powerful bug more uh, valuable just because, you know, w- when you're using two different bugs or three different bugs in an exploit, uh, if even one of them gets patched, it could break the entire chain, which isn't which isn't really desirable, right? Uh, and then you have to go find a replacement for that bug and it just becomes a big pain in the ass. The maintainability of that exploit, if anything gets patched, is fairly low but with one bug you know it, it's less likely that that happens uh and like you said you could go get, get those you know stability upgrades and stuff like that uh and like deadmoth said in there it would require and how many conditions it requires and stuff like that
1: yeah i mean <clears throat> i guess like i can see a situation where having say two bugs or even three can be really powerful to Depends on what those bugs are like there are so many conditions that could be brought up here if it's a bunch of really finicky bugs, you know That's going to be worth less than the one powerful, but You know if it's uh, Three bugs that are, you know reasonably stable. Maybe they've been hidden for like a decade plus You know, so you're not really risking the patch coming too quickly or accidentally Um, Things like that like I could imagine some situation where multiple bugs, but I think in general having the one more powerful bug would demand a uh, greater price like I think yeah. as a general rule I'd be willing to say that but there are exceptions
0: yeah alright so yeah we'll, we'll get back to the, uh, the what's up Johnny attack uh, so did you I, th- I think you were talking about this before we jumped into that question so did you want to continue yeah. on yeah
1: Yeah, it's uh, It's just uh. basically an attack on end to end encryption uh kind of has two attack ideas both kind of stupid simple things but kind of fun nonetheless uh one is a decryption oracle uh so the idea here being that an attacker can decrypt an encrypted uh message so this is using like uh pgp s mime things like that to encrypt the attacker does require access to the ciphertext to pull this off Uh, to be fair that is what end-to-end encryption exists for you know when the communication is compromised so the fact that an attacker needs that i don't think is really a hindrance to this so the one of the most common ways of kind of going about this is just modifying the reply to address that way when the um when the victim sees the message it gets automatically decrypted and they reply, they reply to the attacker instead of to whoever actually sent the message. Uh, So that way, when they reply, they maybe have the quote in there, it's not automatically encrypted, because it's not the same target. Um, And now the attacker gets access to it. Uh, Essentially, all this thing does is it covers some ways of hiding uh, the hidden encrypted blob. Uh, And it just does that in kind of the obvious way using mime types creates an html part you know hide it with css things like that uh yeah. its example is a hidden iframe that way a text scraper running through it won't pick it up either uh which which is a fair attack i mean it, this is just something that's kind of fun it's not something that i think I mean check your reply to address when you reply to somebody look at who you're replying to it's pretty simple
0: Yeah I mean I don't think it's too much of a practical attack but like you said I I thought the cl- the tricks were pretty clever uh the way you're talking about it I think you've probably seen some of these tricks before so maybe you weren't as impressed with it as oh, I was Oh so
1: I actually really like the idea the signature one I I thought that was kind of neat Oh um, so the signature um I'll I'll let you kind of jump in with what you liked. But uh, the signature one, basically what that did is it's a way of getting a message signed by somebody else, getting them to sign your message. Uh, uh, The example it gives is like, I declare war on somebody. I don't remember who they said they were declaring war on, but they wanted to make, you know, their victim sign this message, making it look like they declared war on somebody. Um, Yeah. So in the in this case, how that worked is they would use the CSS again to hide or show content uh, using different things that would change by who's viewing it. So it'd be a message where when your victim views it, they just see some innocuous message. But when, you know, whoever you want to forward it to sees this signed message from whoever else, you just kind of send them along this signed message. When they view it, the CSS would be different. And on that Uh, On their viewer, they would see this other side message, the I declare war.
0: Um, Yeah, so I was just going to say, like, basically, I thought those tricks were really clever. So, like you were saying, using the CSS conditionals to hide texts and messages to turn victims into signing oracles. I thought those were, like, really, like, really clever attacks, but it... It kind of sounds like you already knew about these kinds of attacks before the reading this paper, uh, so I guess... Definitely
1: not in this context, and, like... I mean, you kind of see some kind of creative stuff coming up when it comes, like, some click-jacking attacks, uh, some, UI, like, UI redressing. You can see some similar concepts, but no, like, this is definitely novel to me. Uh, in yeah. the context of email, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see this being used in phishing attacks. I just... Uh, like you, like, I don't think
1: this would really be for phishing to be fair. Like, I mean, the well, signed email and to, this is something that's also really obvious. If you just, you know, control you or like view source of your email, then it's really obvious. Like, I don't know about your email client, but, um, I know I always set mine up just to use text. And when things don't appear right, I, uh, you know, control you and try and read it. Um, maybe that's not a standard practice by everybody, but that's at least kind oh, yeah, of how I go about that, it, and that so would make it really obvious that things are being hidden.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I meant more from the phishing angle was just that it was like, you know, you you do require having that... uh, You know, like you said, it could be basically this attack could be destroyed by just looking at the reply to address. So... Well, yeah, to that's be what fair, to the...
1: Uh, I, the signing one isn't so much the return to. Like, in theory, you could forward, like, you could show that same signed message to somebody else. I think the idea would be that they reply to somebody else, and, you know, let's see, there are ways you can't do that without a with reply to, but yeah, like, reply to in general is just sketchy. Yeah. Although you can always just edit the from too. I mean, it's not like a lot of these... Actually, I guess, like, Gmail does do the verification. A lot of mail servers don't actually verify kind of sources and do all the extra steps i mean it is just a header being sent there's no real check on who's sending email
0: yeah uh one thing i did want to bring up before we kind of wrap it up though is i i wanted to point out a, a pretty uh cheeky statement they made until today it has a high reputation among activists journalists and privacy privacy enthusiasts implying that like this white paper is like killed pgp or something I thought that was a pretty funny statement. I don't know if you saw that.
1: Yeah, I I just kind of read that as like, that's... Yeah, I, the, until today, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean this, it, probably... it doesn't kill it. There's standard practices. All, like... You know, watch I mean... who you're replying to. That's kind of a standard practice. So I, I don't... My uh, opinion of PGP has not been reduced dramatically because of this
0: yeah no this is a people problem not a pgp problem uh i mean yeah Oh, it's it's an
1: email problem an email yeah an email email is like this mishmash of stuff
0: that well i think it's both i think it's an html problem or like an email problem and a people problem
1: yeah well exploiting it's it's a people problem
0: yeah uh no problem exists
1: (laughs) between keyboard and chair
0: yeah So I thought that was a pretty pretty funny statement. Probably just a joke they threw in there, but, you know. I mean, it is a white paper, so I don't know if... Yeah, we don't know how seriously they're
1: actually taking themselves with it or not, but... Oh, no, I read a white paper in a more serious note, but...
0: Yeah, usually,
1: Given the fact that they also titled... What did they title this, like, uh uh what's see. up johnny i think it was yeah
0: what's up johnny yeah
1: i mean they gave it that type of title i could see them just not taking themselves super
0: seriously with this yeah all right so we're uh now going to talk about another i think this is what you were kind of referring to when we were talking earlier about the ai stuff this is yet another uh another yeah th- this trick. one is
1: another fun trick i'm liking that word for this stream it's uh
0: which AI or or uh trick? The
1: fun. Well calling it a fun oh, fun. Fun, fun issue. Trio. Yeah. Yeah. So oh no, you sc- if you scroll down just a little bit, uh you can oh. kind of see the core of this issue is they essentially create a patch you can wear so that you're not detected as a human.
0: Um Yeah, that thing right there.
1: Yeah, like I mean they <laughs> they take it in a few different ways. They also look doing this with stop signs, so like uh AI isn't detecting stop signs, but
0: this is, th- I didn't see that one. I don't know. Was I don't
1: think they have a picture of it, but they talk about their classification oh, okay. against that. And I mean, yeah, the idea here is essentially just creating some that you can wear that hides you from being detected as a person. There are a couple issues with this one. Again, this would be like a first step. It is a frame thing, you know, in this frame, they are not detected as a person. As they're walking, you know, if they're being seen from the side, I imagine they suddenly are being detected as a person. But they're only really focusing on the still images and hiding it for the still image. And a lot of these systems are going to be video systems. Um, and just kind of talking yeah. about the actual attack scenario, like let's just say my local casino was doing person tracking like this. I had some oddmate system for that. How... How do you figure out what system they're even running? Yeah. Like, I, I, I honestly, like, you could probably do something like, you know, there's probably some social engineering. Like, you could figure it out, but that seems like a really big barrier to figure out, especially if this doesn't just universally work across all systems. Ignoring the whole video aspect, which I think is another big failure here. But, like I said, this is a first step. It's just, like, a proof of concept saying, like, hey, you can wear a picture around your waist and... You're not detected as human anymore. Like maybe you should keep this in mind when you know the Terminator stuff starts happening.
0: (laughs) I mean, they also said we create a small around 40 centimeters by 40 centimeters adversarial patch. I don't know if I consider that small. (laughs) That's pretty big. I mean
1: Yeah, I mean it's definitely it would be more interesting if this was like, you know, hey, you put a few stickers on like small stickers and suddenly it trips it up and maybe that that could be done. That would, that would be almost practical if it's something that could blend in. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, like, sure, you're not automatically detected as a human. Anybody watching the footage is obviously seeing you as a human and is probably noticing, like, people around are probably noticing, like, what's
0: with this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll just walk a little bit further away from him. He doesn't seem to be on his right mind wearing okay. a big picture of whatever that is. Right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> but the core concept, though, I... I think that's kind of a cool idea,
1: like finding a patch that hides you from a human detection. I mean, that's.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the basic idea seems to be trying to do something that catches the AI off guard, like kind of like the opposite of a poisoning attack, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is um, more adversary, like it's just not trained with that adversarial data.
0: Yeah. Uh, What I do wonder, though, maybe it it probably does go into more technical detail about why this specific example works. Um, Like, what if that was on a t-shirt or something? It probably wouldn't work the same way, right? Well, so they
1: have uh, some other actual (laughs) examples.
0: Like, there are more pictures towards the uh, end of this. I'm just trying to find it here. Oh, those ones, there. oh, no, apparently not.
1: <laughs> no, the ones that were kind of coming up uh, right towards the end here. Okay. Um, No, those aren't the ones I'm thinking of either. Uh, they had um, one where it was like a, like it wasn't a picture like it
0: is in this case. It was just static, it looked like. But uh, looking at those pictures you have up there now, look at how he's holding the, like, the same patch, but if he holds it on an angle, it still detects him as a person.
1: Yeah, so that's something that they talk about. Like, there was no constant place where you could keep that, and you would, like, between people, and it would automatically just not detect you. Like, it wasn't always just around the waist and stuff.
0: So you had to have a lot of luck, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so not really practical at all. Uh, Not really. Yeah, what I was thinking of when I was looking at it was maybe it was the shape. Because you notice, like, the... Uh, the patch or whatever they're calling it, uh, you know, it it would modify the shape of the body a little bit. You know, it would would have the the square edges around where you normally have the torso. I was wondering if maybe that was part of it, but I mean, it's hard to say
1: what exactly is causing it to miscalculate it, yeah. Um, because I mean, with so many of these AIs, like you don't know how it's making its determination,
0: yeah. Yeah, and that's that's something you brought up as part of the reason why it's not really practical because it's like you can't really determine that, especially in like a casino, for example.
1: Though um, I do and- like a Dibma's idea here. Um, it would be cool to have a stop sign T-shirt that forces cars to stop at crosswalks.
0: That'd probably work too. <laughs> I well, mean, maybe if you not, could find
1: like- a way to make the vehicle, you know, see you as a stop sign. I imagine, though, in the future, you know, as 5G rolls out and stuff, one of the big things they're kind of touting is vehicle-to-vehicle communication and vehicle-to-everything communication. So in that case, it would be like, hey, you know, I'm a stop sign, and as a person, you wouldn't be able to respond to that type of interaction, like that digital interaction. Well, that would only work for a short time, but yeah, (laughs) that's another just fun idea with this is making a ai think you're a stop
0: sign well i was thinking the hope was once you got that like vehicle to vehicle communication you wouldn't even need stop signs because stop signs are just mainly for humans to use right to as like a communication method Well, once presumably not all the vehicles
1: are going to be ai controlled
0: okay th- yeah that's true that's a fair point um but yeah i wonder if that could actually work even today if you had like Maybe not a shirt with like a printout on it, but if you wore like a stop sign reflective thing, if you attached it to yourself or something, it'd probably work.
1: I mean, I could imagine some system. I don't know if that would work against something that have a lot of data over what a stop sign looks like.
0: Yeah, Um, that's maybe not. Yeah, And
1: I imagine there's also, I'm pretty sure like Tesla has information regarding that, like where stop signs are and stuff. So, yeah, it does some detection, but it also has a data set of information.
0: Yeah, it does, like, GPS or whatever, right? Like, to detect
1: Yeah, well, I mean, GPS isn't necessarily the best thing to use, just, you know, GPS and accuracies and stuff. But, um, like, I, I just mean, I believe there's more data already being used that would kind of make it difficult to work, except in a proof-of-concept situation where it's some kind of dumb situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that pretty much concludes this like paper. It's, it's mostly just fun. Like, you know, that that's going to be our key word of the episode, but it's, it's mainly just like, you know, theoretical attacks that what if this could happen, but nothing really concrete, nothing that could be used in a practical scenario.
1: Yeah. Again, Um, you want to see this being done like against Tesla, against those systems. Of course those are harder to test against because they are somewhat closed.
0: Yeah, unless you have a couple hundred thousand dollars to buy a Tesla and all the testing equipment, you're probably not going to be able to do too much in that regard. I mean, they're university um, students. University students are rich. Yeah, totally. Uh, but yeah, so we'll, we'll move on to uh, something that, you know, uh, kind of helps out our podcast name, you know, Zero Day. day yeah, zero. it's actually talked uh, about a zero day. Well, a few, yeah, a few zero days. We're we're lucky this week. Um, So the first one is an RCE and EA's Origin desktop client. So Origin, it's a pretty popular client, right? So you have like, well, it used to be only Steam, but now there's so many different gaming clients. You have like Steam, Battle.net, Origin, et cetera. And and the Origin client is... uh, so the the vulnerability is basically a template injection so they use this parameter called title uh, to insert the title of the game into the activation required pop-up and it turns out that that title uh, value is not sanitized or anything so you can inject right into the template Yeah, so
1: I think it's also interesting here just to point out that it's using this Origin 2 protocol, or it's using like a custom handler. So it's similar kind of to last week where we had the issue with uh, the QT stuff being able to drop into the uh, plugin path um, and giving those arguments. This is a different, like the attack scenario here is different. But again, you know, this is a custom protocol, so it's attacking a desktop application with this type of template injection
0: yeah and uh so you know another little bit of background is that apparently origin runs on JS. i think it's around like version 1.3 or something like that um so because of that you know you uh, angular.js has a sandbox but it, you know from what i know about angular.js angular.js sandboxes aren't too difficult to escape there's public sandbox escapes for like every version there is So they basically just used like one that was already public and chained it with their template injection to get command execution through uh, Qt's Q Desktop Services API. So that's, I think, it talks a little bit about that. Oh,
1: so Qt's in this one again too.
0: Yep, yep. (laughs) They use the Q Desktop Services to uh, pop calc. So yep, yeah. Essentially, this is
1: yeah. I mean, I I definitely would not blame this one on Qt though. No. Uh, like in this no, case, not. the issue is squarely like the the issue here is in how origins using this, although since you scrolled down there on the disclosure timeline, I do want to give them credit, you know vulnerability reported on uh April sixteenth and vulnerability patched on April sixteenth
0: wow. that's a quick turnaround that is I and I mean, that. I, I mean i mean to be
1: that. fair that like a lot of companies have when you have these critical issues they'll actually have like we are going to have a response to this like within if this gets reported you know there's like 15 minutes to get a team up on it and then there's like 3 hours or 6 hours to uh, you know be doing x y or z and then like you know 24 hours to patch or something like that like that's a sign of like a mature uh, security program so I don't know a lot like we don't have a lot of details all we know is it's reported and patched on the same day and yeah. public disclosure on the same day but i mean it is a good sign towards their security posture if they are able to respond to these so quickly obviously this is a pretty simple issue to fix it's not like there is some complicated thing to dig into so i mean it seems yeah. like it would be an easy patch but you know they got to it same day and that is somewhat impressive
0: yeah uh one thing this does one question this does kind of bring up though is like you know these types of issues are so they're not very hard to come across when you're talking about js stuff right like it's just like template injection is pretty common wouldn't you say in, in terms of
1: oh uh, i don't i don't know about that i mean obviously xss okay. is somewhat common template injection is it falls in a very similar vein although now you need to be generating the template dynamically and a lot of applications just don't do that they just don't do a dynamic generation of the template they just use the template yeah uh so i don't think it's that common actually like it's not something i run into on like every assessment or something it's okay it's definitely there it's an issue and i think it's going to become more common as we see more applications moving towards like angular moving towards
0: um you know, having these client-side templates. And I mean, that is something that is kind of worrying me that more and more desktop applications are starting to use these web, like JS frameworks. So like these types of issues are now going to be a lot more dangerous in the way that they can be used.
1: Yeah, I that's fair. But at the same time, like just in terms of the web aspect, I mean, this is... I think a lot better than just plain old JavaScript pages where you had a lot more clean XSS in there. I would rather see sites at least using this because there is at least some baseline. Uh, It's a lot more difficult to kind of accidentally do this than it is to just accidentally echo a value out uh, that was user input like in this case like you need to be dynamically generating that template itself not just using a static template and that's sh- generally just a bad practice in general
0: well, yeah yeah
1: generally a bad practice in general i'm using that for a lot too <laughs> uh but yeah. i mean i'd say this at least using angular it's a step up from just your classic excess so i think that's a good move seeing it on the desktop obviously is a somewhat concerning yeah. Uh, in this case, Lisa, they got the command injection kind of through you needing to communicate with something else, which maybe isn't going to be there on all applications.
0: Yeah. So I was looking a bit at Angular JS sandboxing because I was curious. Uh and so one statement I found was that sandbox the the AngularJS sandbox was never really considered as a security barrier, which is kind of silly. And apparently in 1.6, it was actually removed entirely. So, you know, talking a little bit about using JavaScript and using, like, these types of frameworks in desktop applications, I think it could work, but I do think that there's not enough focus on security in that area, and there needs to be more of it. Like, the sandboxing and stuff like that needs to really be worked on before I start to accept it into more desktop clients. I, I think Yeah, that would be, I mean,
1: like... I can understand that concern. At the same time, this does require that it's being exposed in this callable way. You know, the Origin 2 handler. Not every application's exposing every view like that. Now, when it has like a web app and a, uh, you know, desktop that's essentially the web app, then it kind of becomes more clear as to what you might be able to call and stuff. But it does require that in order to exploit this. Um, Like, that is a a difference with these desktop ones. They need to expose some of this functionality still. Now, there have been attacks in the past, um, uh, like, doing a phishing page on... I don't remember what the application was, but essentially one issue with these... They are effectively a browser being shown to you, but you don't see the URL bar. So, if you manage to get redirected somewhere, like a phishing page, you don't see it as a phishing page. You don't have a clear uh, indicator that, hey, this isn't using HTTPS or, hey, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, some fake Russian website and not actually google.com that I'm entering, uh, my credentials into, albeit we just talked about how Google's kind of blocking some of that stuff, you know, logins from the web view, so you wouldn't be able to do that, but, um, yeah, you know, that idea, like, there are some interesting risks that come from, desktop applications like this. But they also remove some risks. Like, you don't see... uh, What is it? You don't see... um, The buffer overflows as much, like, in that. It still might be in the Chromium, but... Like, assuming it's Electron, you know, running Chromium in there. But, uh... You know, it takes care of some issues, too. So, yeah, they're different issues. But they're maybe dealing with some also like there's a trade-off going on
0: yeah and uh dibmo from the chat just said uh mentioned an attack where like firefox going full screen and then creating a fake address bar with html that's an interesting uh attack too i I never really thought about that yeah
1: there's actually another one similar to that um it would fake a um So it would look at what, like, uh, operating system you're using and things like that. And then it would fake a window popping up outside, like, as though it were a new window entirely. Um, And it would just look like it's a new window, but it's actually part of the uh, browser window that you're on. Uh, So it would look like you're logging into Google or something, and it pops up, and it looks like the right URL. Like, they have all the graphics right. Um, and it's just like, because if you've ever used like Google s- for a single sign on, like maybe you've clicked the link and it pops up a little box and like in a new window, instead of just taking you over to Google, it gives you a new window, it would simulate that, but the entire display was inside of your browser window, so the attacker can see everything you were entering, you weren't actually communicating with them. Uh, and that's kind of what I was talking about when I talk about something UI redress type attacks.
0: It's amazing how like clever you can get when it comes to browser stuff. <laughs> like you can do so many like interesting They're they're quite powerful,
1: attacks. you know. Browsers can do a lot now.
0: Yep, got to love browsers. So yeah, so that that sums that up. We'll we'll talk about some some Windows zero days. These are a bit more technical uh and so I I like them more. They're more fun. Uh so this is yet another Windows OS vulnerability that's been discovered after it's been exploited in the wild. This is like, how many has it been now? Because we've covered some on this podcast before. I feel like this is like. I think they actually mention a uh, count. Like
1: they mention a few from there. I think I see four CVs. Or this is the um, fifth consecutive local privilege escalation vulnerability found recently. Um, right in the oh, right here very okay. end
0: Ah, there we go then there's our answer right there yeah so there's been a lot of windows activity lately in terms of like apt and stuff it seems uh and so this was of course the bug in this case was in win in uh, win32k so for those of you listening that don't know too much about windows uh full disclosure i'm not like a, a big windows person either but win32k is known as like the bug farm for windows vulnerabilities a lot of windows apps are starting to try to move away from it uh i i think like browsers like chrome and stuff don't use it anymore where they used to a while ago uh they designed entire security mitigations around mitigating access to win32k like that's how bad the code is um so yeah this this bug is of course in win32k it's a uaf uh the the technical details are a bit obscure because it uses you know it's the windows uh window API functionality so you if you're not too familiar with that terminology it can be a bit difficult to try to parse what it's saying uh, but basically it was just saying with the window manager that you could cause a UAF and uh, and I think it's it's pretty cool like seeing all these windows exploit I guess Cool and scary at the same time because Windows is, you know, it's a huge OS, it's used by almost everyone in terms of like uh clients and stuff, maybe not for servers but for desktop users and stuff. It's the most popular OS, so yeah. What another interesting part of it though was they said that they didn't they couldn't find who was actually the target of the campaign. They said, uh, at this time, we don't have any information at the time regarding the target. So, it's definitely an interesting read. If uh, the, the link will be in the description if you want to check that out. Uh, did you catch anything that I missed there, Z?
1: Well, I just want to make mention, uh, the APT groups were dubbed Sandcat and Fruity Armor. Those are the two groups.
0: Those are some wonderful Who
1: names ones. these groups? I mean, this is kind of, I wish Antti was on with this one. Maybe he could enlighten us a little bit about that, but yeah because be nice. i know like with malware you, you get the names usually like there's some signature in the code like that's used in the signature detection there's something unique about it that stands out and that they just kind of like take that merge it and you kind of make a name out of it i don't know if they do something similar when they look at these apt groups or not but like you know i just want to know who thought of like fruity armor obviously that's not the name that they go by like somebody like a researcher has chosen to name them that and I don't know. I just want to know the story behind why they chose fruity armor. Like, did they feel that they were doing some like extra little security stuff, like adding some little armor on their, you know, whatever they had like exploit kit or something that
0: was just they felt was fruity. Like, I I don't know, but it almost just seems like a an a random name generator. So they have like (laughs) arrays of words, and then they just it could be. I honestly have no idea. Like that that would be like sand cat would be something you'd think would come out of a random generator. <laughs> like uh yeah. Interesting question though. Like we gotta ask Auntie that next time we're on. We gotta write down on her little notebook. We have to ask him that. We'll uh, follow up with that, see where these names come from. Cause I am actually like that is a, a curious question that like I'm not I'm sure, sure we
1: could Google it if we cared enough.
0: Maybe. Maybe. Uh yeah so i don't want to talk about the windows zero day too much other than just that it you know it's been posted uh i don't see any technical write-up linked or anything in this uh that being said i haven't looked uh very much for one uh but if you're a windows person then this this is probably going to be an interesting read uh especially if you want to learn a bit more about win32k and the windows uh like window management stuff in windows um but I think from that we can move on to the AdBlock Plus uh, filter exploit. So this was Let another. Me just
1: interject if you're yep. using AdBlock Plus, just switch to uBlock.
0: Oh, you're just gonna yeah. Just I just want to toss chill. a plug
1: in there. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> just shilling uBlock. Um, yeah, so this is another case of basically a feature being abused. So what it is is they have this uh, feature called a they have filters right so you can set filters on on websites and the content that they produce and one of the filters that they allow is something called a rewrite filter so you can use a rewrite filter to replace code on sites with uh or like text from sites with other text and the idea of this attack is using that to maliciously inject code but usually uh you know it's pretty restricted it's designed to only load content from a first-party source so generally you can't really load content from another site uh, and there's some other types of requests that aren't permitted but i think that uh, this vulnerability basically bypasses that and yeah it says right here uh, you can use it to load content from remote locations uh, there are some conditions that need to be met uh, here so you know, the string needs to be loaded using XML HTTP request or fetch. Uh, The origin cannot be restricted on the page and the origin of the code must have a server-sided open redirect. So I was just kind of reading that from that list there. But uh, one of the most interesting things I found about this uh, article was it says, I tried the exploit in Chrome and Firefox and could not get it to work. So I wonder what kind of uh, technical things are getting in the way of exploiting it on Chrome and Firefox.
1: So Cause... that actually probably has to do with the changes to their... Um, uh, the changes to the plugin system. I don't know for sure if that's the case, but as you're mentioning it, my initial thoughts: is changes to the plugin system because what they've started disallowing are things that will block the page loading. Uh, So if you want to make a rewrite or a modification uh, that will end up blocking while it loads or while it does something, um, you're basically just not allowed that level of access anymore. Uh, okay. So I believe that's where it would come down. It's just in how they've locked down plugins, so you just can't do that anymore.
0: Yeah, though it did say here that this other person over on Bleeping Computer managed to get it to work, though, and I think that... I don't know if that means specifically on Chrome and Firefox. So,
1: so it could be, um, I could just be completely wrong. Like I said, that was just my initial thought as you mentioned that is they have made some changes to plugin security, which might be blocking it, or that could be completely unrelated.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we can just speculate because, uh, I don't see any details specifically why that's the case in the article, Uh, The other notable requirement, though, of the attack is obviously you do need to be able to uh, set a filter. So an attacker would need to be able to have control over a filter that you have running or, uh, you know, you'd have to get it into like a filter list or something, which is a pretty notable requirement. Um, And the other, you know, thing on top of that is apparently... AdBlock is going to remove the rewrite function from future versions, so it seems that that attack is probably going to die here at least for AdBlock. Uh, I don't know about other like ad blocking softwares. Like the two main ones are AdBlock and and uBlock Origin. But well, there's uh, AdBlock and there's AdBlock Plus, and there's
1: uBlock Origin.
0: Yeah, on top of all they the other AdBlock ones. and AdBlock Plus are not you know the same uh what are what's the main difference i don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole but like i i honestly don't really know what the big difference is between abp and ab
1: um my understanding is they're different applications period so the, one like of them they're not the
0: name or something
1: <laughs> uh, i mean there probably was at some point like a fork or whatever like there might have been something like that i don't i know i've looked at the history a couple times Okay. Uh, but it's definitely not something I've looked at any time recently. Uh, but yeah, it's not yeah too I mean, it's
0: personal curiosity, my, really.
1: Basically, it's not like they're they're different applications. It's not like ABP or um, it's not like it's just a plus version or of it. It's not. They're not related.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I could maybe see these kinds of attacks happening in other uh ad blocking software that have similar functionalities um but that being said you know with that requirement of needing a filter and the fact that ad block is gonna remove that feature it's you know i think it's uh cool to touch on that it happened but i don't think it's gonna be something that's gonna be a big issue going forward or anything like that i think this is pretty much gonna kill that attack um
1: Yeah, and I'm not uh, completely sure if, um, if UBlock is actually kind of vulnerable to that. I don't think UBlock has a uh, like that type of, uh, that type of filter in it.
0: I don't think it does either. I, I don't know if it mentions it. Yeah, it says yeah the extension U-Block Origin is not affected because it doesn't support rewrite.
1: Yeah, because I mean that kind of comes down to the different architectures that they use to do the blocking. Yeah. So like I think AdBlock Plus is one of the only ones that actually just supports that completely arbitrary rewrite
0: until the next version, yeah. 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 So we'll we'll move on from that and we'll go into the uh DACL permission override privilege escalation. So this was another Windows bug and it was uh it's actually quite cool. It's an issue that you'd come across more likely in a uh like a CTF and I just uh Demar said something did you want to bring that up with the adblock stuff
1: Yeah um sent or Demar just says uh, adblock sold out to some companies and then people started forking the project didn't it That sounds like what I remember but yeah I don't have the information off hand to actually confirm that but you know that sounds right
0: to me Sounds reasonable yeah Uh so yeah just wanted to quickly that out of the way so back to the uh dacl permissions overwrite so basically the issue is that they abuse hard links to make the system modify the permissions of an arbitrary file so you know each app uh including microsoft edge has this settings.dat file in the app data uh in the app data folder for it and that just has like registry information and stuff like that uh, related to that uh application and you know if that file is corrupted or anything like that automatically on startup uh it does some basic integ- integrity checks so it lists them right here so it does a check on the file permissions and if it's incorrect, then it'll correct them uh read the file content uh, and it will you know restore the file if it's corrupted and then gets an exclusive lock on that file and then it'll start the windows app so the key to the issue there, I think, is this first point, that the if the file permissions are incorrect, then it'll correct it. So basically, when it goes to do that, if you create a hard link from that .dat file to some other file that you shouldn't have access to, uh, this article goes into the host file specifically, um, then you could use that to change the permissions of that file to make it so that uh, unprivileged users can read and write and execute to it or whatever. So. Uh, you know you just relink that settings dot to whatever you want and you can get arbitrary permissions on that and i thought that was just a really cool bug it's kind of something like i've seen simlink exploits in uh in CTFs and stuff but you don't really think about it being used too often in like real world scenarios
1: definitely i've seen um kind of in the real world um you know because that okay. comes down to misconfiguration type issues um, Actually, probably one of the places I'd see it most is relating more to uh, linking in files like in Docker or something. And then you link a host file and um, basically escapes where you can write something on the host system from the Docker container, blah, blah, blah. But long story short, like, oh, no, I, I definitely see SimLink related stuff come up every so often. Um, it's not a big part of like what I do since I tend to focus on applications rather than on like the full deployment, and like you know I don't do the network pen testing as much, but that is something that's seen kind of at that level, yeah, I mean not not quite this you know particular attack, but other ideas using kind of sim linking the wrong files and yeah getting access to stuff that way like you get to make a sim link to the wrong file,
0: yeah. So, uh, this article does actually provide a video of the POC in action. Uh, I think it also, yeah, they also posted the POC code. I I actually didn't take a look at that, but it's, it's here on GitHub. So we'll have that in the external link section of the description as well. Uh, just the one repo it seems, but, uh, yeah, pretty cool attack. And, uh, yet another windows bug. Gotta, gotta love windows. Um, So I guess from that, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. We'll, we'll talk about this other wrap up with Cisco Uh, wrap wrap up with with an iOS bug. Yeah. iOS.
1: (laughs) I (laughs) I mean, mean, Hey, Cisco had it first.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I looked at it. I I don't think we can talk too much about it because there isn't a ton of technical information.
1: No, it's actually a really stupid. Well, I can guess as to what happened here. This is most likely a dev change that made its way to prod. I would not want to be the one that, uh, you know, get blame on this. Uh, Because (laughs) if you look at what their suggested, like, patches, the workaround, it's Um, it's uncommenting to two lines in one of the configuration files. It's the two lines that tell it, you know, what interface to listen on. So I'm assuming without (laughs) that. So the issue here for invite that hasn't read it yet uh, is essentially uh, administrative interface uh, wasn't isolated properly. So somebody on the network could access the sysadmin VM and all the fun things that go along with that. Yeah, you found it there. It's literally just uncomment those two lines telling it uh, what appears to be, I'm assuming, you know, VRF as uh, relate to the interface that's going on. I don't know, but the fact that just that simple comment, I'd bet this is just a dev kind of commented them out while working on it and it made its way into prod. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a really simple issue here. It's just listening on presumably all interfaces instead of just local.
0: Yeah. So just to sum that up a bit, the impact was apparently you could allow an unauthenticated remote attacker to access internal applications, or you could cause it to potentially crash or something like that. Uh, vulnerability was given a nine point eight base score. <laughs> it's pretty uh, pretty high. Uh, well, I don't I mean, know. And you've got if... an
1: admin interface listening out to the network. So yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's fair. But uh... kind of compromised everything there. It's.
0: So that, that'll conclude all the topics we were going to talk about today. Uh, Anti will hopefully be back with us again next week. We'll, we'll have to see how that uh, plays out. But yeah, that pretty much concludes the Day Zero podcast. Uh, all the links and stuff for what we talked about will be in the description. And we will see you guys next week.